Welcome to the FPC Thomasville podcast. We believe human life has a designer. So learning to live by design will help you thrive within all your spheres of influence. Today, Reverend Skylar Adams will share a message about reinvention as part of our Seasons Sermon Series. We often connect the opportunity to start fresh with a season of growth. Think about it. A new job, another child, next Saturday's ball game, or even a geographical move. Scripture sees the opportunities of our greatest growth a little differently. Instead of erasing our past, it often locates the fertile soil of growth in the very thing from which we're seeking distance. Are you in a season of tremendous growth? A season of reinvention? This week, we will discover the ironic questions that often point to God doing something significant in our lives. Are you asking any of them? Let's find out together. Have you ever had some extra time in the car and decided to take an alternate route? Perhaps you have someone in the car uh, who's not as familiar with the area and, you know, the, the A to B byway is just not going to let them taste, you know, the sweetness of that area. Maybe that's a difference in my generation and, and others, you know, we're, we're sort of glued to the, to the map quest or the, the, the maps, whereas, you know, um, older generations like, no, I, I just know the area. You know, I know you need to go south. You know, I've always been, uh, you know, how am I supposed to know which way is south? Go south on that. Okay, which way is this, son? Um, at any rate. You have some extra time and you go a different way. When I was um, in seminary in St. Louis, uh, the, the, the main highway just bisects the city right in half. And we had a few extra minutes and I, I took, a, took a right. I got off on a road called Speedy, which was somewhat ironic. And uh, then I hopped on another sort of two-lane, 15-mile-an-hour kind of road. To my surprise, you know, um, curiosity to hop off the highway led to just a little bit of an oasis those last few minutes arriving at our destination. It was lush and beautiful. There was a little golf course over there. But you've done that, right? You said, you know what? I've got a few minutes. Let me take a different route. I've been surprised by something. This morning, we're going to read the true story of Moses taking a little bit different route. We're kind of confused as to why he does it. And he doesn't seem to wander into a lush area. But it's different. And he is surprised in a profound way. Let's hear this story together. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 3. I invite you to, to turn there if you, if you would. We'll be reading several verses um, and then skipping into ver- uh, chapter 4 as well. Hear God's word this morning from Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad one, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's an interesting way to assure someone. After you make it back, I'll be here. Continues. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I then say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Forward to chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What's in your hand? A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. That's a risky thing to do. So he put out his hand and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Onward to verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said, Who has made, the man, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and if I and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Oh, and take in your hand his staff, with which you shall do the signs. Our closing verse. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, uh, the Georgia game, one of the announcers said, uh, after they had missed the couple of field goals, said, you know, to play college football well, you need to have amnesia. You've got to get back on the field. You've got to forget what happened before. 
That's, that's pretty true, don't you think? In politics, you know, we have an election coming in. If there's a new candidate on the scene and they have a good political strategist, that, that strategist will say, all right, give it to me. Tell me your story. I need to know the highs and the lows. We're going we're gonna to give the highs to the, everyone else and we're going to try to keep those lows in the closet. Tiger Woods, when, when his scandal broke loose, um, through, through a biography I read, the, his publicist was like, Tiger, you've got to you know, offer a public apology. Your fame requires you to present yourself broken, in other words. And he resisted to the utter end until he did. Why is this? I understand football, we, we honestly, I mean, in any sport, um, in some cases you just need to sort of forget what happened so you can move on. These other two examples. It's because we don't believe that something good could actually come from our brokenness, from our weakness, from our sin, in fact. We don't believe that the season of reinvention, a season that Moses was called into and sent out with clarified and bold identity, that season to which all of us Christians are being called in Christ, we don't think that God could actually work all things to the good. Certainly they don't mean those weak spots, those blind spots in that brokenness. Mark Friedman, a social entrepreneur, um, wrote a, a very helpful article in Harvard Business Review and uh, to, to sort of underscore this point. The article title was The Dangerous Myth of Reinvention. Yet for all its can-do spirit, I've come to believe the reinvention fantasy, that is the whole romance with radical transformation unmoored from the past, is both unrealistic and misleading. I'll even go further. I think it is pernicious, the enemy of actual midlife renewal. See, the culture, the world, apart from the kingdom of God, sees reinvention as something that we pursue through our own strength, our own motivation. You know, you've seen the, uh, the picture, the side-by-side -side picture of someone who's gone through a diet and exercise program, and for whatever reason, they don't only look better, they're like tan. Isn't that confusing to you? Um, it's, all, it's about our ability to reinvent and project a new invention. Biblical reinvention, however, is all about a clarified identity, one that takes you back to the beginning and brings you through redemption. This is our flaw, church. We believe that our brokenness, our weakness, and our sin cannot be a part of that reinvention. And yet, brings us to our question this morning. How does God bring about the work and the season of reinvention? He does it through the past. God reinvents us, his people, through, according to, and from the past. Sounds ironic, doesn't it? First, God's past. We saw on a few occasions, verse 6 and then verse 15, which I didn't read, he, God says this to, to Moses to give him strength. He says, say to the people of Israel, how, how does he describe himself? The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Our God is a generational God. Verse 14, 
that statement that we're, we're familiar with and more literature has been written on than almost anything else in Scripture, and that is the title that God gives himself. I am who I am. Literally, the verb to be, relative pronoun, to be. You know, it's like Shakespearean talk. I am who I am. The middle-aged church, through the voice of Aquinas, would go on to describe this as a philosophical and ontological and essence reality of our God. God himself says that my name means that I'm forever. And yet, there's more. It does mean that our God is forever, but he's also one with a relational past. It's a covenantal statement. You see it? He says, I was with your dad, your father's dad, your father's dad, your father's dad. I was there. Perhaps you have sought out a business consultant. And likely one of the, the key aspects of his or her's expertise upon your business or enterprise is that person's uh, exposure to other people's businesses and enterprises, right? Whether they've succeeded or failed, in some sense, wisdom is just wisdom, right? God is coming to Moses. The season of reinvention that he's calling Moses to is rooted in the fact that Yahweh is a God of the past. And if I can put it in a lighthearted way, he has consulted all the generations that have preceded him. I am the God of the past, and it's a good thing. I like to smell books. Have you ever smelled a really old book? And there's just, uh, there's just something about it. You know, I, was, I made the, I, I shouldn't have sniffed my Bible in the last service, but I did. This, you know, my Bible has, you know, has a waxy cover to it, and it doesn't sort of give off this fragrance. But do you know what I'm talking about? Has someone ever given you a book that perhaps was published, you know, 100 years ago or something? And it just sort of, <laughs> it literally smells old. It's as if wisdom has, has been imprinted upon the pages. The story that God has written through Scripture within His Son is one that comes to us, can I say it? Smelling old. Our God is a generationally faithful God. You've been to memorial services where loved ones have died and and sort of one of the, the hallmarks that you remember is, is how the minister or family member sort of either presented or spoke of personal comments that that loved one made in the his or her Bible, right? You hold on to these things like heirlooms. You see, where the culture around us, certainly outside of the church, sees the past as something to be jettisoned, we, saints, connected to a God of old, a God who intervened in history. So how does God reinvent us according to the past, his past? Second, our past. Moses, a couple of the questions that Moses asked from verse 11 and chapter 4, verse 1 are, who am I that you'd send me and they won't listen to me, <laughs> right? It's, it's a question of identity and reputation. We have to remember the story of Moses, right? I mean, 
He was born in, to two Levite parents, and his mother, under the oppression of uh, the Egyptian rule over the Israelite people, um, hid his son. So Moses was hidden. And then, remember, through Sunday school class, perhaps, you remember how she would float him down the river in hopes and faith, believing that he would be retrieved and, given, and shown compassion. And sure enough, he was. God was there. And he grew up where? He grew up in the very palace of Pharaoh. He's saying, God, do you not see that I, I, I'm not the pure blood that likely my people want to have? The credibility required for such a mission. I'm, I'm the half-blood, half-breed, so to speak, fugitive. Remember how he killed that one Egyptian taskmaster, hit him in the sand and, and turned and ran for the hills. That's why he's in Midian. The 80-year-old Moses, 40 years as shepherd, God shows up. I choose you. And Moses protests according to his identity, according to his background, according to his reputation. He's not worried about whether Pharaoh will be uh, receive him. He's worried about his own people. And I think we can all relate to this. This past week, uh, the student ministry committee, we hosted the uh, varsity uh, football team from Thomasville High School, and it was, it was fantastic. We had over 100 um, football players and their coaches in there. And, um, you know, one of the questions I had going in to, to offer devotion to them was like, how are they going to receive me? I, got, I have no credibility with them. I don't know them. They don't know me. I think we can all relate to the question that we pose to our God. Lord, you don't, have you seen my past? Do you know what it all entails? Because surely you haven't, or else you wouldn't ask me. There's a powerful story about a man named Gary Maxworthy. He was uh, inspired by JFK's call to service. He said, you know what, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. But life would intervene, and he had a family, and he knew that he had to go to work. So he did. He worked for 30-plus years as a food processing um, and distribution businessman. 32 years. And afterward, his wife died. The occasion and occasions like it that lead us all into seasons of reinvention. He said, you know what, I, I think maybe I'll go back to that dream. And so he joined Vista, the, uh, the domestic sister of the Peace Corps. And they placed him in San Francisco at the, at the food bank there. And uh, he's, he's watching the, the, the organization occur, and he's noticing that all the food that they're distributing is, is canned and, or processed. And he's like, you know, I, I know where a lot of good uh, you know, food can be uh, curated from this region. He knew the ins and outs of the business, and as a result, he developed, he created Farm to Family. It's a wonderful organization, a non-for-profit food distribution um, there in California. And just a couple of years ago, they delivered over 100 million pounds of food to feed those in need. You see, I don't know if he was a Christian. Nevertheless, the, 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 the illustrated point is this. His life work that happened after that horrible, life-changing event was not devoid of his history. It didn't, his new beginning wasn't stripped of his prior skills. No, God actually used the very thing that he was doing to take him forward. There's tragedy 
and beauty, beauty. There's ashes and glory all in our stories. And we're convinced that God can't use the ugly parts. In fact, we try to manage them as best we can. We sort of try to keep them neutral in our lives. We try to keep them sort of away. The invitation this morning, God's reinvention of our lives, is that we would see the very gory parts of our stories as the place, likely place, from which God will bring about tremendous growth in our hearts. There is no depth of shame that the love of God cannot reach. There is no story that he cannot redeem. Psychologist and pastor Jerry Stringer wrote this, the paradox of the gospel is that our failures do not condemn us. They connect us. Church reinvention, the the place that, that God called Moses and the one that he either has or perhaps one day will call you and I, will likely be found in the very place that you're seeking to run from. A couple of defenses that we throw up when, when, when things about our past are brought up, we can deny it. So, uh, Dr. Gee, don't tell Dr. Clifton this, but I, you know, this past week, I, um, he said I'd gained a couple pounds over the last year. I said, two pounds? I had a baby. I moved. I mean, I'm thinking that's pretty good. Um, Anyway, we deny it. That was my shoes. <laughs> we minimize it. Uh, it oh, that's not as, that, that didn't hurt my feelings like that. Don't, no, 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 don't worry about it. Not a problem. We blame. You know, we, we sort of blame and, and shift it. We, we don't take responsibility. We, sometimes we rationalize. Oh, there, there's a good reason for that. Don't, you know, or if we, you know, if we have contempt over ourselves. Yeah, that, that happened because I, I made this mistake. Us Presbyterians are known for intellectualizing it. There's, there's a doctrine for that. Or maybe you've, you've been in the room with someone who laughs about it. This one, this one always gets me. So how are you doing since such and such happened? You know, it's a serious event. Oh, well, you know, it's... And then they start laughing. And I, I'm like, why are you laughing? That wasn't funny. You know, that, 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 that stung. That had to have hurt. We can laugh things away. We throw up all these defenses because we're convinced that it's those darker corners that God has no interest in, in, in taking. You know, we, we think that our life is a testimony when it's really a testimony in a story. God didn't just show us how to get to him. He wrote an entire historical account of his work in and for us. Our passage concludes with Moses at the end saying, you know what, God, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So whereas the, the points prior were debatable, right? And God graciously says, I can, I can solve for that. I can solve for that. I can solve for that. And then Moses' heart is just put on display. I just don't want to do it. As a result, God is angered. Because Moses is saying, you know, God, it's easier for me to remain stuck in my shame. To, to, you know, just stay out here. I'm used to this existence. I've been doing it for 40 years. I'm 80. This is comfortable. I'm used to the, you know, going back to smells. I'm used to the smell of my life. I just don't want to do it. What Moses is seeing as the thing that he must distance himself quite literally from 
right? This, this murder that he committed is the very, I don't know, framework, soil, nexus, crucial point that God is using to draw him back. I was reading it this week and I was just struck. Moses, you know, this is where uh, Tim was talking about, uh, you know, sin the other week and we, we, we can misunderstand it. And Moses' desire to deliver his people was there, right? He didn't kill him because he's, you know, just was a murderer. He wasn't malicious in that. It was a defense. God is certainly not condoning his behavior, but he's saying, Moses, I've hardwired you in such a way that I'm going to use that very thing that you got wrong to bring my people back to me. We'll end like this. The occurrence or pattern of the lingering sin in your life is likely the roadmap to your reinvention. God often shows up in the very matted down path and rut of our failures, right? He meets us at the one place that we wish he'd never see because he believes and is desperate for you too, too, to recognize your desire is misguided, it's broken, it's flawed, and he wants to redeem it to reinvent your existence, to serve him. I read at the beginning of the story that Moses was keeping the flock and it said in the wilderness, in the desert, man, doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus went into the desert and was tested by Satan himself. Satan would seek to mock his past, his identity, his past relationships, his past ability. Do you you see it? so that mine and yours would not be forgotten, would be redeemed. One person whose past identity, relationship, reputation, and ability, Jesus Christ, was intentionally forgotten so that yours would be intentionally remembered, redeemed, reinvented. His past, from which he had no desire to run, was exchanged for yours. See the grace, Christian. Receive it. And don't forget your staff as you go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. That is true in every season that you bring us into. Would you give us great courage to see our past as an opportunity for you to bring about tremendous growth in our life. Not because we want to navel gaze. Not because we want to go inward. But because as we do, your grace will soak deep, deep in the recesses of our heart. And we'll be poised to serve you well, to love our neighbors better, and to raise our families even better. We ask this in Jesus' name.